Nehemiah chapter 6. So I enjoin you to turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah, the sixth chapter. And uh, we're going to study the, the whole chapter today. And so I'll be reading the New King James Version if you're wanting to know what version I'm in. And what I want to talk about today is seven keys, seven keys to advance God's cause in your life. How many keys? Seven keys to advance God's cause in your life from this chapter. So let's dive right in and ask the Lord to bless us. Father, bless us as we open your word. And may these keys that we discover bless us and uh, give us more of your joy. In Christ's name, amen. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors of the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. So, probably a yes, right? It needs to be a no. So, sorry about that. My mic was not on. So they're asking for him to come and meet in the plain of Ono. Now, Nehemiah and his people, according to this text, had had some great success. What success had they had? Had they experienced? They had rebuilt the wall. The balls, walls were rebuilt, and there were no breaks left in the walls Whatsoever. Now, this was miraculous, and they were experiencing success in their mission and purpose. Now, how is success achieved for God? How had this been accomplished? I think, first of all, a laser-like focus on the mission, that is, building the wall. No allowance of distractions or things that would fragment his team. You know, one of the biggest things when you're trying to get something done is a lot of good things take the place of great things. A lot of things that divide and separate your team from one another, uh, when actually what you're doing needs to be united together, there's an attack on that. So this laser-like focus had led them this far, and the same characters that we saw in chapter 4 now arise again. Sanballat comes from the north. Tobiah comes from the east. The uh, Ono was in the west, that was the Philistines, and the Arabs were from the south. So when you try to do something for God, big, he's going to attack you from the north, the devil will, from the north, from the south, from the east, and the west. <laughs> and this is exactly what was happening. Now in the past, in chapter 4, um, when he, we last saw these characters, how had Nehemiah actually related to them? Number one, he had prayed personally. Number two, he prayed corporately. Number three, he set up a protection plan that included priority positioning at the places where he was most needed. I'm reviewing now. That's why I'm going so fast. You can go back and watch the message on chapter four, but I'm just reviewing. So priority positioning, passionate planning, all family groups were working together because they would defend one another more fully in the wall if the family was at stake. Provision of power, there were swords, there were spears, there were bows. In our case, there would be the sword of the Spirit, right? <laughs> and then he had kind of a revival and reformation team. He had the nobles and he had the leaders and he had lay people all on a team that was working behind the scenes to keep the revival alive. 
And also, it was all kind of enshrouded in praise. Remember our God is an awesome God. Remember that, of course. He reigns in heaven above. They were constantly saying that. You said that in the book of Nehemiah. Our God is an awesome God. So this is how they had dealt with it before. And so basically Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab and the rest, they had kind of given up. But now they come with a new strategy. And what's the strategy? Let's look at it. Verse, um, verse 2. Come, said Sanballat and Geshem. Let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. If I can't conquer by direct assault, by ridicule, these different things, let's try something else. Let's try and separate the leader from his group. Let's try and bring division between the leader and his group. How are we going to do that? Well, we'll invite them to Ono. <laughs> oh no. Where was Ono? wasn't that far away. wasn't that far away. It was only 25 miles away from Jerusalem. Let's try and divide the leader from the group. Let's get him on our playing field. Let's get him away from his supporters. Let's get him away from his protection plan. Let's get him to get away from his mission. Let's scatter his group. But especially let's focus on Nehemiah, who's providing spiritual leadership. Let's meet together. It has a positive ring. Let's meet together. In fact, the word meet there literally means, it's the Hebrew word yad, which is the word used for marriage or engagement. Let's get engaged. Let's start a new relationship. Let's have some nice music. We're going to meet in the town of Ono. I don't know if that's what, you know, tipped Nehemiah off. Oh, no. <laughs> Sounds good, but it was not good. Marrying the wrong person is not good. <laughs> Spending time with the wrong individuals is not good. It's wonderful to eat with your wife, but if you go 25 miles away from home and meet, eat with another woman, that's not good. Yes or no? And he saw through it. What did he say there at the end of verse 2? But they sought to do me harm. King James, mischief. But it's a little more than mischief. It was they wanted to kill him. And of course, that's a principle. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Pick the most important spiritual person in leadership. Strike them and the sheep will scatter. It's the father in the home. The sheep will not follow. They, they will scatter. As you know, they've done statistics on the home, and if the father is faithful, everybody else is usually faithful. If the mother's faithful and the father's not faithful, not good. Not good. Good, but not totally good. In fact, the statistics come back again and again and again. So this is why... The devil attacks fathers, and this is why fathers need personal revival in their lives. Talking to myself here, you guys are listening in. Amen? How many want to pray for the spiritual leaders in homes? 
This is always the tactic. Divide and conquer. Try to drive a wedge to win. But now back to the story. How did Nehemiah respond? Verse 3. So I sent message to them saying, I am doing a great work, so I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? How many think this is just a great response? I like Dwight L. Moody. Haven't even read any of Moody's works. Great evangelist. This is what he had to say. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that really doesn't matter. <laughs> and this, in this text of Nehemiah, notice it now more slowly. He knew what he was supposed to be doing. He knew what his work was supposed to be. It was to rebuild the wall and hang the gates. That was his work. Did he see that this was an important work? Not just an important work. It was a what kind of work, did he say? Gadol. <laughs> a great work. The greatest work. More important than anything else. Rebuilding the walls and hanging the doors of the gates. And what would happen if he decided to listen to their suggestion? It would be a step down. Why should I come down? Going with you is not a step up. It's a step down. And to leave it would cause what to happen? What does he say? Why should the work what? Cease that I should go down to you. Many times the distractions that come to us, they're good. But they're not great. How do you know if something's good or great? How do you know? There's only two things that last forever, folks. It's God's word and people who accept it. It's what? And people who do what? So if what you're involved in is not organically linked to connecting someone with God's word, then it's not great. How many can understand what I'm saying? Might be a good thing, but it's not great. Do you have people you're working for people that you are trying to bring to God's word. And if you leave them, is that a good thing? Not until they're able to fend for themselves, right? <laughs> it's not a great work. It's a good thing. So number one, have key number one, have a clear sense of the work God has called you to. In Nehemiah's case, it was rebuild the wall and hang the gates which was directly related to the plan of salvation. All those gates, as I'll review later, were basically a plan for revival and for salvation. And remember that the first work, the greatest work, is a revival of true godliness is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. What we need is not just revival. We need ongoing revival day after day, week after week, and it is our work by confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions on which God has promised to grant his blessing. I like Moody again. He says, he who 
kneels the most stands the best. <laughs> and a revival need only be accepted and answered to prayer. What is our work here at Weimar? What is the work of this university? I'll read to you from the book Education. These schools were intended to serve as a barrier. What's a barrier? It's a wall. Against the widespreading corruption to provide for the mental and spiritual welfare of the youth and to promote the prosperity of the nation by furnishing it with men qualified to act in what? The fear of God. As leaders and counselors, and to this end, Samuel gathered companions, young men who were pious, intelligent, and studious. These were called the sons of the prophets. And as they studied the word and works of God, his life-giving power quickened the energies of the mind and soul. That's revival. And the students received wisdom from above. The instructors were not only versed in divine truth, but had themselves enjoyed communion with God and received a special endowment of his spirit. And they had the respect and confidence of the people both for learning and for piety, they entered into the work. They didn't talk about soul winning or winning souls to God's word. They were doing that. If you do not have someone you're leading to the Lord, your example is tending to lead people away from that priority. That's not enough to come and put on a yellow shirt. Who are you meeting with each week, eyeball to eyeball, to bring to the Lord? If you're not, you may be doing a good work, but you're not doing a great work. Does your family see you winning someone to the Lord? Is what I'm saying making sense? So pray for that hedge of protection around you, but also through aggressive witness, ensure that that hedge is well manicured. I have a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. How many of you have ever read that book? This is what it says. Good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. We don't have great schools, principally, because we have good schools. How many want this school to be a great school? It's great if it's winning souls. We don't have great government because we have good government. We don't have people with great lives because they've settled for just good lives. Oh, I have a good job. I make good money. But I ain't great. How many want to be great? Not to point to yourself, but to God. And the devil comes back again and again with his temptation to Nehemiah. Look at verse 4. But they sent me this message four times. Let's go to Ono. Let's go. Maybe the different flyer, different brochure. Look at this. There's palm trees. It's a result. It's a, it's a resort. Yeah, but it's taking you away 
from the people you're working with, if you're working with people. I've noticed that people don't mind leaving church if they're not working for anybody because it doesn't really matter what they're doing. They could be anywhere. Does that make sense? But if you're working for someone, you want to go to church to make sure they're there. You want to say, wait a minute, I want to be with these people I'm bringing along. If you don't have it or you're bringing along, then you'll take every invitation that comes to you. And by the way, he who is everywhere is nowhere. I used to travel a lot. A lot of speaking invitations. I used to think that was important. When I studied the life of Christ, 40 miles by 70 miles, actually most of his life was spent in like in a 15-mile radius. People could follow him everywhere he went. He walked everywhere. He didn't take a train. He didn't take a plane. He didn't take a submarine on the Sea of Galilee. He walked. And so you could go wherever he went. You could walk there. You know how many people are within walking distance of this auditorium that need Jesus? I've only worked on three streets in TCI, and I'm still getting to know the people and bringing them along. But the devil will come again and again with serpentine persistence, sometimes working through well-meaning people that have only bought into the good but not the great. Serpentine persistence, what does that mean? Mm, slithering. My brother-in-law, Joel, <laughs> if you're watching Joel, they, they watched last week. <laughs> you can correct me if I'm wrong later. But he told me one day, he says, he used to raise snakes. And <laughs> kind of an odd, odd thing to do, but he raised snakes. And the snakes kept getting out, so it was very annoying. Couldn't find the snakes. So he said, I got to figure out how these snakes are getting out. He became a snakeologist. I don't know, hereptologist. I think that's what it is. I don't know. So he, he takes a box, he puts a snake in the box, and he puts a window inside of the box. And then he just watched. How are these snakes getting out? You know what he discovered? The snakes will curl up, and then they'll take their nose, and they push everywhere in the box. They're looking for what? A weak point. And then when they find it, they use all their might, they push through, and they get out. One author put it this way, temptations from without find an answering cord within, and the feet turn imperceptibly towards evil. They don't even know it's evil what they're suggesting or doing. They've sacrificed the great for the good, and they don't even know it. He who is everywhere is nowhere. So, like Balaam of old, who had a problem with money, he couldn't resist because when the ante went up, finally they found the weak spot. Don't settle, key number two, for lesser things. No matter how much pressure you get, no matter how many invitations you get, no matter how many things come along and say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm working with Polly. I'm working with Andy. I'm working with this person. Amen? 
Number three, counter the pressure to compromise by keeping the end in mind. I have fixed my mind on another time. On another time. Not here, but there. And my life is filled with preparing people for the kingdom. Amen? Tactic number two. Tactic number one didn't work. Tactic number two, let's look at it at verse five. Sanballat sent his servant to me as before, as before. A fifth time though, this time they come with the heat. What is it? With an open letter in his hand. <laughs> now back then in those days, they sent letters in closed silk envelopes that were sealed. You could not see through them. But this letter had no little silk envelope. It was wide open. You could read it. Probably in large font, like, you know, 65. Mm. That is large font. Maybe it took two men to carry it. I'm not sure. With an open letter in his hand. And it was written. Now listen to this letter. Listen to this letter. It is reported among the nations. And Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors... You are rebuilding the wall, that you may be their king. And you also have appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, say, there's a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, so come therefore and let us consult together. Don't say, oh no, anymore. You've got to say, oh yes, because we've got the goods on you. How, how, how convincing was that letter we just read? How convincing? Geshem said this. It's reported that. Actually, it's a rumor. It even says it in the letter. It's a rumor. What kind of a weak, insipid letter is that? But you know people will do that. They'll mischaracterize what you're doing for the kingdom of God. Always trying to make a power grab. Oh, this and that. You hear the most bizarre things. Nehemiah had given his life to the work he'd worked for years, and now they're coming up with this. It simply was a fabrication. And Nehemiah had to respond to it. So what did he do with tactic number two, verse eight? Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say are being done but you invent them in your own heart and mind. How many of you have ever heard inventions designed to bring down mission, designed to attack ability to move together in a unified way? For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. The real reason, even though the people that are good may not realize it, is they're attacking the great, and ultimately when you attack the great, you weaken the mission and the cause. So what does he do? That's what he says, but then he says something to God. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. He goes right back to his knees. He said, God help me, because these kind of people don't even know what they're doing that's wrong. They're trying to move us from great to good. So, key number four then, calmly share the facts concerning the attacks 
with fellow workers when maligned or mischaracterized and then leave the matter with God. Can you say amen to that? Now, by the way, what was at stake? They had rebuilt the wall, but he was about to hang the what? The doors. What were those doors? The first door, the sheep gate. Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, accept him into your life and be saved. That's the great call. Number two, the fish gate. Be fishers of men. Number three, the old gate. Walk in the old path where the good way is and you'll find rest for your souls. Number four, the valley gate. Have sacrificial service. Number five, the dung gate. Be cleansed of everything based on God's promises. Number six, the fountain gate. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number seven, the water gate. Study and have the water of the washing of the word in your life. Number eight, the horse gate. Be realize, realize that you're in a battle. Number nine, the east gate. Be prepared for the second coming. And number 10, the inspection gate. Live as in the hour of his judgment. Those were the gates that were being hung. How many remember those gates that we studied already? So what was at stake in moving from great to good was all the gates not being hung. In fact, an entire plan of revival and reformation was going to be junked by going from great to just good. How many think we need to move back to great in our lives? And I don't know what gate he doesn't want built in your life, but to come down and go his way is to move away from the mission of the master. There is nothing Satan fears so much as that the people of God shall clear the way by removing every hindrance so that the Lord can pour out his spirit on a languishing church and in penitent congregation. I believe this is a languishing church. You're going, what? You just, you just said that? <laughs> Let me tell you why. <laughs> uh, I'm part of it, so I'm talking about myself too. <laughs> languishing, why do I say that? Because in Acts, <laughs> our church does not look like the church of Acts. And the church in Acts, it says they added to the church daily. What's that word again? Daily, such as were being saved. Let's take a very conservative view of that. One person a day. That means this year we should have 365 new members. How many think that's a good goal? Wait a minute. How many think that's a good goal? How many think, what, you crazy? We don't have room. Look, we should not have room at all on this campus for anything we're doing. If we had a focus on great instead of good. Let me, let me just give you an example. When we actually focus on this campus, in our clinical programs, and we're working with people, I know I do that seven times a year here on campus with depression recovery, and when you start to focus on people, try and help them through their problems, physically, emotionally, mentally, you know what happens? There's a spiritual revival that comes. And people make decisions for Christ in the church. Can you say hallelujah to that? Wait a minute. That's a languishing response. Can you say hallelujah to that? Hallelujah. Look, we're languishing. How many of you think that this next year, by God's grace, through his power, as we seek personal revival, that God wants to do something in our lives. Amen. And through our lives. Yes or no? Yes. 
Listen to this. When the way is, it is possible. We are not ignorant of his devices. It is possible to resist the devil's power. When the way is prepared by the Spirit of God, the blessings will come. Satan can no more hinder a shower blessing from descending on God's people than he can close the windows of heaven that rain cannot come upon the earth. Wicked men and devils cannot hinder the work of God or shut out his presence from the assemblies of his people. If they will, with subdued, contrite hearts, confess and put away their sins and in faith claim his promises. Every temptation, every opposing influence, whether open or secret, may be successfully resisted, not by might, more power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Pastor Paul had a message on Wednesday, the three G's. Grief, guilt, grudges. Are you carrying a grudge? Do you feel guilty from something you know you should not be doing? The Holy Spirit convicting you? Or are you allowing what happened in the past, your post-traumatic traumatic situations, to totally cripple you so you don't move forward? That was an appeal from the Holy Spirit, from Pastor Paul. But how many can see how it's related to what we're talking about here? So tactic number one was what? Come down to oh no. Tactic number two was what? An open letter. Right? (laughs) Tactic number three was what we call the temple plan. Look with me at the temple plan, verse 10. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mahatabal, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together. Now, not an oh no. Oh no, not oh no. Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. That's why I'm calling it the temple plan. And let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come and they will kill you. So if you will not go and get scattered abroad and you've figured out that he was everywhere is nowhere, you've figured that these actually invitations are invitations to dilute your mission, then let's just take it inside and see if we can some, cause some problems inside. And look, let's use the best tool for that. Someone very high up in the organization, his name is what? Shemaiah. The words Shema and Yah. Shema means to hear. Yah means who? Look, the guy's name. Hear the Lord. I've got to listen to this guy. <laughs> what a great name. And by the way, he's a prophet or he's a priest because the guy says, I could get you into the house of God. I'm going to listen to him. I'm going to listen to his advice. And he first of all goes over to his house. He's a secret informer. He's on my side. And he says to him, let's meet together. In the temple, the house of God. That sounds good. That sounds good. Doesn't that sound good? By the way, I'm a priest. I can get you in. I got the keys. Let's lock in with God. Let's have a lockdown party with God. That sound good? By the way, he's a prophet. Here's my prophecy. If you don't do this, you're going to die in the middle of the night. (laughs) If you follow my plan, you're going to avoid certain death. And I'm from God. I'm your friend. 
Sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? Except it's not a good plan. Sometimes people inside the church can have plans that are not good plans. Is that true? Not good plans. Let's read on what happens. Verse 11 through 13. And I said, should a man such as I flee? Who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Oh, you unspiritual person. Nehemiah. Well, let's keep reading. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all. Even though he had the name of God. But that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. What? There's money involved. And for this reason he was hired. Uh-oh. I should be afraid and act that way and sin. That they might have cause for an evil report that they might approach me. Sound like a good plan, but it was not. Why not? Because it was a sin for a layperson to go into the temple at that time. Who am I to go into the temple? And it was also discovered that he had been hired. Remember verse 5? Or chapter 5? The money factor when he had to stand up to all the rich nobles who were manipulating people, who were speculating and making money at a time when they're supposed to be rebuilding the wall. How many think this is the time to be speculating and making money? Or is this the time to rebuild the wall? Chapter 6, 17 and 18, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah came to them, and many in Judah were pledged to him, and they reported his good deeds before me. In other words, not only was he bankrolling this guy, He was also bankrolling other people. He had a lot of money and a lot of influence, and so did the nobles, and everything gets sticky when money is involved. Why are you really serving God? Are you getting kickbacks to serve God? Key number five, don't think that just because it's a pastor or even a prophet that you should follow Know the word directly. Know what sin is and is not, and don't compromise. Don't go where you shouldn't be. You know what it's called in the Bible, the New Testament, when you go when you shouldn't be? Blasphemy. Key number six, follow the money. Who's paying who, and who is being paid by who? Now, let me just bring this home in terms of a little bit of Adventist history. How many of you have ever had Kellogg's cornflakes? Did you know that Kellogg was an Adventist? Until his flakes got frosted and he left. But he was a, he was, <laughs> he was, <laughs> he was an Adventist. And why did his flakes get frosted? Because He didn't want to follow the money with Will Keith. It was a money issue. But let me see, show you the heart of Kellogg. Kellogg, at this time in his life, was a very converted man. We know this because um, those around him testified to it. And so did his contemporary Ellen White. And she was known for rebuking people and knowing whether or not they were following the Lord or not. 
And she even said he was a converted man. Now let me give you an idea of what it means to be converted. Would you like to hear it? I've given a great deal of thought and study to the subject. The subject was the second coming of God and promoting it. My wife and I have given considerable attention to this work over a number of years. We have been planning to raise 40 or 50 children ourselves. Let me read that again. We have, somebody should have gasped. We have been planning to raise 40 or 50 children ourselves. How many moms out there say, hallelujah, that's my calling? Look, I took care of Wolfgang with my wife this last week. And I was on duty for one hour. Oh my goodness, Wolfgang kept me busy. 40 or 50 children. Just as fast as we can get any money, we will invest it in the children. I've done that for several years. Every single dollar that can be saved from other necessary expenses goes into the education of children. In other words, he wasn't driving a Lexus chariot, buggy. <laughs> he wasn't having a super-duper three-humped camel. He went with this to one hump camel. I've done that for several years. Every single dollar can be saved. I do not believe we have any right to accumulate money. This is the problem. People accumulate money. They try to manipulate with their money. And it puts the mission out of commission through their manipulation. So he wasn't doing that. I think as long as we are well, he and the missus, and have God's blessing on our work, it is our duty to spend what we earn in God's work. I do not believe that in this age any man has the right to accumulate money. That's Kellogg when he was converted. And Ellen White said he was converted. Now can you see why he was converted? Because where your money is, there's your heart also. And he was not giving out of abundance. He was giving now out of nothing in the bank. Ants. <laughs> not abundance, but nothing in the bank. How many of you have anything in the bank? Then you're not like Kellogg. He gave everything. He was all in. In fact, Ellen White says, if you charge the wages, if you charge the price for doing medical procedures that the world does, take the name missionary out of what you do. You're not a missionary anymore. What would happen if all of our resources were thrown into the work? Would we have any problems with money on this campus? Would we have any problems with a focus of mission? Would we have any problems with love? If we were all in, how many think that might change things? What was Nehemiah's response to these nobles? He prayed to God. He said, God, remember their apostate committee. <laughs> There's Tobiah and Sambalet, and they even have a prophetess, Noadiah. That's the reverse revival and reformation committee. <laughs> it's like the apostate trinity. Like in Revelation, it talks about the beast, the dragon, the false prophet. And you have God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's always a reverse <laughs> revival and reformation committee. I call it the contrival and confusion committee. <laughs> the contrival and confusion committee is always fighting against the revival and reformation committee. They come up with ideas that split you up, that Make, take your focus away. They don't mean to. 
because they're good, they're just not great. They might not even know they're doing that. What's needed is revival and reformation. Verse 14, or verse, uh, key number seven. This is our last key. <laughs> Pray and give glory to God. What was the personal prayers of Nehemiah? Oh God, strengthen my hands. What was his prayer concerning the problems? God, remember Tobiah, Sanballat, and the prophetess Noah, die. You take care of them. What was his prayer concerning progress? Look at what it says in verse 15, our last verse. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, right? And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this was the work done by Don McIntosh. This was the work done by Dr. Nedley. This was the work done by Nehemiah. Is that what it says? What's it say? This work was done by our God. So number one, personal prayer. God, strengthen my hands. Number two, standing the problems over, the, the detractors over to God. And number three, when there's progress, give all the glory to God in your life. It's not your ingenuity. It's not your education. It's not your brilliance. If it's God's mission, it's God's brilliance. It's him working in and through you. Remember that you're not saved by your works. You're saved solely by his grace. You have nothing to bring at all really to the equation except surrender to God. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, that which is not a faith is sin. Even your great Sabbath keeping, if you think that's the great test, that doesn't commend you to God at all. You're not saved by your Sabbath keeping. You're saved by Christ's Sabbath keeping in you. Amen? We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what he does. We, he gets all the glory. I don't know about you, but this sermon really convicted me. Did it convict you at all? It made me think, do I have a clear sense of the work that God has called me to do? Am I keeping the main thing the main thing? Or am I settling for lesser things? Am I, when pressured to compromise, keeping the end in mind? Am I, when accused, calmly setting the record straight, sharing the facts with fellow workers, and then giving it over to God? Or do I hold grudges? Number five, do I think just because I'm a pastor or a prophet or a pastor or a prophet suggests something, that I should follow them? Do I live by internet preaching? You know, that you can learn a lot about a person if you actually know what they do. Most of the people on the internet, you don't know anything about what they do. Am I visiting people? Am I giving myself to people? Do you know that or do you not know that? Should you know something about your spiritual leaders? Don't think just because it's a pastor or a prophet that you should follow them. Know the Lord. Know his word. Despise not prophesying, but test all things. Hold fast that which is true. Number six, follow the money. Who's paying you? Who's giving you perks on the side? 
Are you listening to them or are you listening to the master? Who are you paying off? Where your money is, there will your heart be also. Money often reveals one's motivation. And number seven, pray, pray, pray. Say, oh God, strengthen my hands. I'm weak. I've failed. Strengthen my hands. How, many, how often do we need to pray? Without ceasing, amen. Ongoing personal revival. Problems, remember to refer them to God. God, you take care of the apostate trinity of Tobias, Hambalet, and the prophetess. Progress, give all the glory. Give all the glory in your life for any success you have. Not to yourself, but to God. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.